0: Hey, Bayview Glenn. so good to be with you for this final of this three weeks for the problem of Jesus. For those of you who are new, my name is Mark. I pastor a church out in Vancouver, British Columbia. We actually have campuses in Calgary, Winnipeg and Toronto as well, uh, coming soon. But man, I am so glad to be part of your church for the last three weeks. And thanks to your leaders for letting me be part of this. Love you guys, love the work of your church in Toronto. We are gonna hit a passage that's super famous to end off this series. So if you've got a Bible, Luke chapter 15, probably the most famous story that Jesus ever told, what's called a parable, for those of you who might be new to church. And these were kind of stories that Jesus would tell that would frame life in a way, metaphors, images, Symbols that would make you question. And this is what this story does. Everything you thought you knew about yourself, God, salvation, everything about these things that humankind has been talking about and trying to figure out since we're drawn on walls. Jesus comes in and tells a parable that blows all of that up. Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy, religion itself, E-religion, everything gets blown up in this story in this beautiful way. So it impacts all of us. No matter if you've been in church your whole life or you're just starting to explore Christianity or you're an atheist or an agnostic or, or someone from another religion, this story is gonna impact you in the way Jesus tells it because he tells a story about, now it's, it's been called the prodigal son, which is a bad name because it's really about two lost sons, not just one son as we're going to see. So as I read this, I want you to try to find yourself in which son are you? And then we're gonna see the point of the story. So Luke 15, let's just work through the narrative and talk about it together. Starting in verse 11, it says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So in that culture, Of course, he'd wait. I mean, this was purely offensive, right? My father, when he dies, he's gonna give me money. And the son goes to him and he says, I want the money now. Basically, I wish you were dead. Give me your money now because I wanna go spend it. And this is the first son. This is the first kind of person that exists in the world. This is the person who kicks against God. Of course, the father in the story is God. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. Right? I want, I'm going to elevate gift above giver. Of course, we see that constantly in the way that we think and talk, live our life. We see it in what's called the prosperity gospel. Oftentimes where people say, believe in God and you'll get all these good things in your life. And you never want, you know, all of that. We talked about that in week one. Give me your stuff, but you, I'm not, I don't see you as the great reward. I see your stuff as the great reward. And so here we have this son. And so it says, the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son, so this is the younger son, gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Underline that word, reckless living. Here we see the first son, the irreligious, secular, reckless. I I don't care about my life. I don't care about morality. I'm going to live how I wanna live. We see, Half the people in our culture are like that, right? Maybe some of you are like that. You're just like, yeah, a concept of God, don't really care about it. I'm gonna go and live and do what I wanna do. Freedom, self-actualization. I'm gonna make the most out of life. I don't care about morality. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. Now, this is the house I grew up in. So I know I'm a pastor now, but I didn't, as I talked about last week, I didn't come to a church till I was 19 years old. Someone had told me about Jesus in high school. So I was kind of, I grew up in a home. This is not a joke. My dad was so antagonistic against Christianity that he actually named my brother Matthew. He told my mom, sure, we can call him Matthew, but we have to spell his name with one T because I don't wanna be biblical. So my brother, four years old, I mean, on his driver's license, his name is Matthew with one T. Four years later, they have me and name me Mark. Okay, so clearly this guy has never picked up the gospels and gone, oh, this is biblical. Like if I had another brother be like, hey, there's Luke. He had never picked up a Bible. That antagonistic toward Christianity. I'm the last guy that would probably even become a Christian. So I was the younger brother. And some of you are recklessly living, doing what you want, doing drugs, throwing rocks through car windows to get money to mortar, to all of these things. And God chased me down. Just like he might be chasing some of you down in this moment. This was the younger brother. This was many of you. And what happens? He's reckless. He's living out in the far country. And the way his life gets changed is right here between verse 14 in 20 and 21. Listen, and when he had spent everything, spent all his money, hits rock bottom, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the dozens, uh, one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, which to a Jew, you don't hang around pigs. So there's this kind of piano in the background of this story that we don't always understand. To hang out with pigs was like the dirtiest of the dirty job. So here's this younger brother. He's now hanging out with pigs of this citizen in this far country. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have no underline this. I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son." So here's how the irreligious, secular life gets changed. They stop trusting in themselves. That's what the story is saying. They come to a place where they admit the most humble of humble things. I am not worthy. This is counter to what the world tells you. You're unique like a snowflake, you're okay. Go inside yourself and find your inner divine, right? This is what we try to do. This story is saying, no, you're not divine. You're actually sinful, the the language is. I am unworthy, I can't, and and we know this about ourselves, Guys, think of your kids, right? Those of you who have kids or think of yourself as a kid, what doctrine in Christianity is more proven every day than our own sinfulness? We tend to be what uh, Martin Luther called homo incurvatus, humankind turned in on itself, sinful by definition and choice. Look at your kids, they're narcissists. They're little little devils, those guys. They just do what they want to do when they wanna do it. And they cry and they whine until they get what they can get. That's what, they, I mean, I remember, man, I got uh, 14, 12 and 10 year old daughters, but I remember, man, when my daughter was three, I'd drive around, I'd go the wrong direction. She'd be like, daddy, wrong way. I'd be like, buddy, you don't even know how to spell your own name. So there's that, just watch the bubble guppies and shut up. All right, what what are you doing? And she would, hey, dad, you did this wrong. This is how she was. I remember I walked into the bathroom one day and she's sitting over the toilet. No joke, she has this like roll of toilet paper And she's like, donkey? I'm like, no, donkey, don't do that, all right? Cause it's gonna overflow. No, Uh, yeah, that'll, no. Okay, do it then. All right, so she shoves it in there and she flushes it, and it bubbles up, it starts overflowing. I'm like, ah, see, I told you. My wife's like, which one of you is older? What is actually happening right now, right? This is the utter sinfulness of humankind. We kick again and we don't, we have all these glorious things about our life and we don't even know it. My kids growing up sleepovers and great food and uh, uh, trampolines and and they think they did it, right? They don't recognize this. It's like, I'd be like, hey, daddy did that. No, that's just the way it is. That's the way the universe is. This is how we live. We think we're making that. You think you're making it happen. You think you got money because you got money because you just worked so hard and you don't understand the grace of the father that has allowed you such a life. Every day you should wake up and just be like, ah, like I'm alive. That's crazy. Every day should just be like, oh my goodness. I can't believe I'm existing right now. This is a gift from the father. The book of James says, every good and perfect gift comes from the father of lights. Breath in your lungs, food, beauty, love, music. It's God, it's God, it's God. A human centered theology will say, you did it. You worked hard for it, it's all about you. This story goes, the father gives things. The question is, do you take them? And do you say, I'm not worthy? Or do you say, man, I'm worthy. I'm so worthy that God gives me these things. Those are different approaches. And the only way you find salvation in the end is when you come to the end of yourself. When you stop believing in the story that tells you, you can make life happen, don't worry about it, you're awesome. I uh, live in the West Coast and I remember going to this coffee shop a little bit ago and there was a a jar sitting there. Like when you walk up to the counter, you buy your thing and, and it's tips and it was called the karma jar. Right, karma jar, man, you throw a little money in there, karma's gonna give it back to you. And this story just came out and called out two things. It said, new ageism is wrong, you're not divine. But it also says that you're not on the flip side, an animal, because you're a son, you're a daughter of the father, you're a child, you're not, simply part of the animal kingdom, doing life by instinct only. There is a sacredness about you. You're made in the image of God, that's the image. And yet we're lost, right? We're not found yet, we're prodigal, we're, you know, I like to say uh, Revelation chapter three. You know, Jesus looks at the church and he goes, "You're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked." And I've always said, once we get our building, we're looking to build a building as a church and uh, starting a campaign uh, up again early next year to to get a facility because we rent everything and we need a headquarters out of which to do our ministry. And so. I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna put that verse above the auditorium, Right? <laughs> you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Welcome to Village Church, right? So because that puts us where we're supposed to be, we're lost guys. And if it's all about you and if you're fine and if new ageism is true, then you don't need saving. You'll never come to understand what this younger son comes to understand that I got nothing without him. I need to come to the end of myself to actually ever be saved. That's the reason you lie. That's the reason you cheat. That's the reason you spin things when people tell stories. It's the reason you do what you do because you're lost. That brokenness is an essential part of your identity. If you're ever going to get salvation, if you're ever gonna see transformation in your life. People think, well, you're a pastor, you must not sin. Guys, there's moments where people will walk up to me in the auditorium or whatever, when we were gathering, It'll be like, hey, pastor, you get that email? Oh yeah, I got that email. That was wonderful. What you said in there, thank you. And I'm like, wait a minute, did I just lie? Why did I do that? Because in that moment, I'm like, I'm believing that my reputation is more important than listening to the first of the 10 commandments, which is have no other gods before me. In that moment, I lie because What comes before God in truth is my reputation. I want the person to feel valued, so I'm gonna lie to them. What is that? It's because I'm lost. That's the default setting of the human heart, lostness. Think about what you can learn about your lostness as a parent. I remember when my daughter, my first daughter Sienna was one or two. I took her to a public pool And we were swimming, my wife was away. It was the first time I took my young daughter to the public pool and we're all swimming and we're we're having fun. And we get out of the pool and we go into the locker room and it's freezing cold in the locker room. And I only brought one towel. And I'm like, oh man, only one towel. And so here's my daughter and she's looking up at me and I'm sitting there with a towel wrapped around myself. And I'm looking, I'm, boy, it'd be nice to get another towel so she's not so cold, all right? She's looking at me with these little like squirrel eyes. Like, yeah, I'm like, man, you know, it'd be nice to get another towel around here. So it, my wife never would have done that, all right? That's the gene in me, that's selfless. Take care of number one first. It's in all of us, magnified in different ways in our lives. We need to come to the end of ourselves. I'm a... Evidential thinker. Right, I, I'm, I'm the younger son in the sense that I'm I grew up irreligious, secular, skeptic, philosophy. When, when someone started telling me about Jesus, I'm like, I need to know, I need to be convinced of the evidence of Christianity. I'm not just going for the heart. I want to know that this makes sense in the marketplace of ideas. I wanna, I wanna know, I, I, I've always been an evidential thinker. I remember my mom came to me one day when I was a kid, I, I used to put on rollerblades and put a big rope on my buddy's bike. And I would just go roller, I, he, he'd you know, shoot around the corners and I would shoot out and I'd just go be super fast, it was amazing. And one day my mom said, hey Mark, you should stop doing that. You're gonna get hurt. And I'm like, what do you know? Show me the evidence. What are you talking, I'm not gonna get hurt. What are you talking about? So, Week later, my buddy's going around the corner. I shoot out like this super fast. And there's a car coming right at me full speed. And the only way to not die was I went down on the ground on my back and just skidded across the asphalt. My back's getting ripped up, my legs getting ripped up and I stop and the car stops dead over me. And I look up at the engine and I just remember the first thought that entered my brain was, oh, evidence. Right now I believe, All right now I can see what you're talking about. I never believe anything until there's evidence. So if you're the younger brother, let me just talk to you for a couple minutes about what made me begin to realize that Christianity is true. First, there's the question of course, of the origin of all things, a pretty big one. Is there reasons to believe in the existence of God? And I began exploring this and I began realizing something. So. All the philosophers for thousands of years, Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, everybody knew that if anyone and anything begins to exist, it has to have a cause. Right? It's called contingency. It's like something needs to, if something begins to exist, something had to exist before it to make it happen. So for instance, you know, you exist, right? And so your parents one day, you know. The, the, the mood was right, whatever, and now you exist, all right? So those parents existed before you, outside of you and predated you. They came together to do it. So people would say, well, what is the eternal non-contingent? What's the thing that's always existed? And for thousands of years, people would say, well, the universe. The universe is the thing that never began to exist. It always existed, so we don't need God until, The 1930s, when Edward Hubble looked through his telescope and realized that all the planets were moving apart from each other. And he started to rewind the clock back. And he realized that billions of years ago, the universe actually began to exist. It had a birthday. All time, energy, matter, space came into existence in a single moment and all all space even is expanding ever since. And so this pushed the philosophical question back to Whatever begins to exist has to have a cause. Now we know the universe began to exist. Now the universe has to have a cause. And I began realizing that actually philosophically and scientifically, the deeper science has delved into biology, astronomy, uh, the moral ethical questions, philosophy, history, literature, the more legitimate Christianity has become, not less. When Darwin was doing his work, he couldn't see into DNA. He was looking at bones and wings and doing external microscopic things. But now we've got into DNA strands and we've realized that there's a language built into our humankind. There's literally a language, one scholar Francis Collins calls the language of God built into humankind, I mean, this is pointing toward the existence of God and that began to bother me like it might bother some of you younger sons. I don't wanna believe in this. Or what about uh, the question of morality? Why do you believe in right and wrong? That should bug you, it bugged C.S. Lewis who later in his life as an oxford professor said I don't want to believe in any of this but why do I know the difference between right and wrong why do I know that murder is wrong genocide is wrong why do I have this sense of justice I want to constantly fight for justice on my social media page why is that because if we were if we just developed out of animalistic instinct we wouldn't have an objective moral value that said that is always right and that is always wrong and of course the postmodern response to that has been well Let's just say that all morals are relative and subjective to the person. There are no objective moral values. There's a problem with that. Try to step in line at the grocery store and see if anybody believes in objective moral values. I remember uh, here in Vancouver, we, have, uh, we live right near the border, about 10 minutes from the border. So there's the normal line where you sit for three hours. Uh, Of course, before COVID, now there's no one there because you're not allowed to go. And then there's the Nexus line. And the Nexus line is this special group of people who go get their applications and they get a card and they can just zoom by everybody and go right down to the state. So I remember I had just moved here. I didn't know any of that. And so I'm getting in line, I see this three hour line and then I see this empty line and I'm like, sweet. Sure, Nexus, sounds good. So I just jump into it and boom, I shoot down past three hours of traffic. Right at the end of it, I turn into the normal traffic because I realize, oh, I don't have one of these Nexus cards. I turn in and I'm right in front of these three guys in a big pickup truck and they are angry. I mean, I just cut in front of them and they are jacked. They're yelling and screaming. They're all like, they're hunters, they're big guys. They just came from killing something for sure. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is going on? And I'm seeing them and they're screaming and yelling. So now when you're uh, you know, built like me, you tend to not fight very much. And you really, if you get into trouble, <clears throat> you have one of two outs. You either run really fast or you act crazy. And so that's what I did. I went into crazy eye killer mode and I put my car into park, got out of my car and just walked right up to their window. And I was like, and I'm like screaming and yelling and I'm walking up to their window and they're looking at me and they're like, and they like do up their window and just sit there. And I'm like, are you So you don't get to question whether there's morals and the question of objective moral values that we all know that these things are right and these things are wrong raises the question why you have that. Because Christianity says you have a moral law giver who built that into your very soul and told you rape is wrong. Dropping napalm on babies is wrong. There's certain things that are right and there's certain things that are wrong and it's not even a debate and it should bug you. If you're a younger brother who has chosen e-religion as his way in the world, why you even have that? Or what about the question of evil and suffering? Sometimes that's the reason people don't believe in God. I remember it bothered me for a lot of years. What you gotta understand about that question though is the fact that evil and suffering bug you is itself an evidence toward the existence of God rather than away from him because you wouldn't even have a category called evil without God wiring it into you. you. You would just say, I don't like that a, a guy walked into a movie theater in 2012 and, and, and shot a bunch of people and killed them. I just don't like it, but you can't say it's decisively wrong unless God gave you the category that says, this bugs me. It's an evil, not just something I don't, it's evil. And if you wanna say there's evil, then you have to say there's God because God's the one who defines good and evil. He's, because if it was just nature, you would look at nature and you go, man, red and red tooth and claw. A, a, a lion kills a zebra. He doesn't murder a zebra. So then where did we as humankind ever start to go, oh, now I have consciousness and something becomes murder. Something becomes wrong versus just killing something for the sake of survival and instinct. Maybe for some of you, it's a question of the Bible and you go, I don't legitimately believe in the Bible. Look, I had a huge question. I would sit outside and smoke my cigarettes and read the Bible because I was like, if I'm gonna believe in this, I wanna believe in this. And here's what I began to see as I read the New Testament. I saw all these reasons that now I realize scholars point out for the legitimacy of the gospels. The fact that they include, for instance, so many stories that have counterproductive content if you're trying to just make Jesus up. If you're just... The early church, like Dan Brown says in the Da Vinci Code, the early church just made Jesus up. Just coming up with myths, coming up with legends, coming up with stories. He walked on water, he did this, He fit, all made up. If you're doing that, scholars point out, then leave out the stories where Jesus walks into a village in Mark six and it says he can't heal anybody. Just delete that because it's gonna mess everybody up. What do you mean he can't? What about the stories where people walk up and go, hey, do you know when you're coming back? Hey, are you God? Uh, yes, I'm God. You know all things. I know all things. When are you coming back? No idea. Only the father knows that. What about when he's sitting in the garden and he's pleading, God, can you take this cup from me? Just take that part out. Whitewash Jesus. Make him look like the bravehearted, just like on the horse. Of, mmm, I'm coming in. I have no doubts in life at all. I'm the man. I know what I'm doing. Don't have him crying in the garden and the most secular of scholars go, all of these and a bunch of other reasons, vindicate the gospels, show them to be trustworthy, that they were written so short after the events that it's basically like reportage in the scope of history. 40 years after most religious, they were getting written 500 years after. And what that means is people were alive at the time who could say that didn't happen and that did happen and the gospels never would have traveled anywhere. That's why that names people. This guy's the son of that guy. Go ask him, he's still alive. And then of course the resurrection, the legitimacy of the resurrection. Nobody can explain the rise of the early church, the empty tomb. Just go and get the bones of Jesus. If you find the bones of Jesus, Christianity is over because Christianity, this is very important, is not a mythology. It's not a philosophy. It's not an ideology of life. It's not a religious uh, worldview. It's about a historical event that if it didn't happen, then we're wrong. Even more than just like the teachings of Jesus. This is about the death and resurrection. So prove the resurrection wrong, all of it gets tossed out. It would have been very easy to do that. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, the Roman empire could have just. And then people say, okay, what is a better theory? I was watching the Discovery Channel official counter theory to the fact that Jesus really rose from the dead. When I was exploring Christianity and they were like, okay, here's what happened to Jesus. It's called the swoon theory. He went up on a cross and he kind of passed out. They thought he was dead. So then they threw him in a pit and then he just wa- Guys, if the Roman empire knew how to do anything, it was kill people. All right, they would crucify 6,000 people on a single day. They didn't tend to take guys off crosses and throw them in a pit. And then they were like, "Ooh, that was close. Like moving on with life. Guys, the resurrection really happens. So all of this is the stuff that came together to convince a younger brother like me. And maybe some of you need that convincing that you need to come to understand the humility it takes to be the younger brother and say, I'm at the end of myself, I can't save myself. That's the key for you. Look at the beautiful response of the father. Verse 20, and he rose and came to his father, but while he was a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Some of you younger brothers view God to be malicious, angry, sitting in heaven, lasering light beams down at every immoral thing that you do. He knows everything you do. And the minute you pivot to him, he starts to run towards you, kiss you, embrace you. This is how good he is and look at what he does. Father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says to his servants, of course the father interrupts his speech, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fat and calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. The robe would have been, the best robe would have been the father's own robe. He gives him his own robe. Christianity explains that as the righteousness of God gets put on us, he kills his most prized possession, the and calf and kills it and celebrates the return of this son who because of humility has now trusted in the love of the father. And the father celebrates him. Is that your life? I want some of you today to actually give your life to Jesus. That's what this story is trying to draw out of you. A loving father who runs after you He's what theologians call the hound of heaven. He's not sitting up there hoping you can figure out some incantation and get him. That's Gnosticism. You need a special knowledge and special incantations and wording. The father goes, you get a heart of humility that says, I can't save myself. I run toward you. I save you. I love you. I sacrifice my most prized possession, my own son, Jesus. He dies in your place. And when you take that death on yourself, we celebrate. Now, lots of sermons at that point when we tell this story end there. But here's the problem. There is a second son, which is the son that is the category that is the rest of you. If you don't find yourself in that first son, you will find yourself in the second son, which we oftentimes forget. Verse 25, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fat and calf because he's received him back safe and sound but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came and entreated him, but he answered, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Underline those in verse 29. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, but the son of yours comes who's devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. You know what this is? This is the other way to be lost. Religion. I have done all your rules. I've never watched a rated R movie. I've been to church every week since I was a kid. I was born in the pew. I I have my WWJD bracelet. I only say Christian swear words. I'm a good moral performing reward oriented person and you owe me. You owe me a good life. You owe me that I never should have experienced divorce. I never should have had a kid who goes off the rails. I never should have got that diagnosis. I never should have got fired from work. And certainly you're gonna take me into heaven. I've memorized this book. And the son is lost. The tragedy of this story is that the older son is the one that never comes into the party. Do you know how dangerous that is for all of you who've grown up in the church? we, We talked about the younger son for a while. There's a way to be lost because of immorality. And there's a way to be lost because of morality. And it's keeping you from the kind of humility that we saw in the son. I remember my early years of college, my friend called me up. He said, I have a really cool opportunity for us. It's to go on a television show and talk about God. I was like, awesome, great. What's the topic? The topic's prayer. Okay, awesome. Well, cause I didn't have a prayer life. I went and read books about prayer and I got some good little one-liners. So my buddy picks me up and we start into going to Toronto, a studio in Toronto at the time. We get all set up, he's driving there. He says, hey, uh, what are you gonna say about prayer? I said, I don't know, but I read this great line from this book that I read that prayer is not only talking, but it's listening. And I'm just gonna slam that and I'm gonna get mystical. Oh yeah, that's great. I said, what are you gonna say? He said, I don't know yet. And he kind of gave me, I was like, what? So. We get in the studio, makeup, cameras are rolling. Everything's set, boom, it's live. And the host says, blah, blah, blah. Hey, glad you're here. We're talking to Mark and his buddy. We're doing all this stuff. Let's talk about prayer. And he looks, they look at my buddy first and they say, "What do you, what's your profound thought on prayer? And he looks right at the host and he goes, you know, I've realized that prayer is not only talking, but listening. And then he kind of gives me a quick look. You can see it. He just gives me a quick look. And I'm like, (gasps) and I just want to kill him right on national television. Just end it, whatever, take me in cuffs, I'm over, right? This guy steals my line. And then they go, oh, that's profound. What do you think, Mark? And I'm like, "Ah, I don't know, coincidences happen, but life is, I'm like, what are we talking about? Do you know how sick that is? That, you know what that is? I was emptied of real prayer life, so I was playing a game. I was acting, I was performing, I was speaking to something I didn't really know and experience and believe, and that is the state of the religious soul. It looks good, it sounds good, and it's empty when there's nobody looking. And that is actually the tragedy of the story. Because Jesus is saying, you can't actually earn it. You can try to be a good person, but I'm a righteous person. Father, look, I've never done anything wrong. I've obeyed all your commands, verse 29. I've never disobeyed. I have served you. I've done everything right. You know, even, Even non-Christian people believe that there's a kind of righteousness that can save them. Whether that's just socially or in their own spirit or whatever, I'm a good person and that should mean something. Here's the problem. In that moment, here's the mistake the older brother makes and we do it as religious people all the time. They're comparing themselves to the wrong thing. Here's what I mean. You can always find someone worse than you. So when I looked at, my non-Christian, when I just became a Christian and I'm sitting in the garage chatting, Like one minute I'm smoking weed on a Friday night in my buddy's garage, and we're all, two weeks later, I come to Jesus and I'm sitting in the same garage now defending Christianity. I mean, still high, cause I got the garage door closed, but now I'm defending Christianity. And what are they saying? I don't need Jesus. Why? Cause I'm gonna go to heaven when I die. Why? And this might be some of you because I'm not Hitler. I'm a good person. Here's the problem with that philosophy. You're comparing yourself to the wrong thing. The gospel, it's like, it's like. Um, um, okay, so I've been in like two fights in my life. One of them was my buddy, Kevin. He knocked me out pretty quick. The other fight I won. Couple punches, little stranglehold, it was over. It was my cousin, Cheryl, all right? And I was like, I started walking, I was a man like, oh man, I wanna fight. I beat up my cousin, oh man, I'm legit. So put me in the ring though with someone bigger and stronger than me and I'm done. Here's what Christianity says, you're not in the ring with Hitler. You're not in the ring with this person on the news that blew away a bunch, you're not in the ring with anybody. You're in the ring against the God of the universe. Now, how does your righteousness hold up? How does it measure, but I've done everything right. It still ain't enough. You need to let the sacrifice that was done for you by the perfect lamb of God, slaughtered on your behalf, save you and nothing else will, not your performance, Not your religion, not your church attendance. Nothing can save you. And this is what's so scary about the religious spirit. You needed someone to go to bat for you. In college, a friend of mine asked me for a paper that I had written the previous semester, got an A. And he said, I, I'm taking the same course with the same teacher, but I, I can't really get a, a start. I just wanna borrow the paper. And I said, you can't borrow the paper, you're gonna cheat. No, 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 I'm just gonna use that as inspiration. And then I'll give it back to you. Okay, so I give him the paper. And I was like an academic, I really wanted to do well in school. I wanted to become a PhD. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanna do all these things. So I'm like, bro, this is gonna be real. Yeah. So two weeks later, he calls me up. He says, I got a confession. What? I copied your paper word for word. I handed it into the teacher. I didn't say anything, but now the Holy Spirit convicted me. And I went and told the teacher that I copied the paper. And there's a tribunal tomorrow with four or five teachers because they wanna know who gave me the paper. So they can suspend us. What? Maybe expel us. Sorry? No, yeah, you can't tell them my name. I'll never tell them your name. I'll never in a million years. They can torture me. I'll never tell them who gave it to me. Okay, you better not because I want to have a career in this. Okay, great. He goes in the room, all these five teachers line up. They open up their binders. Who gave you the paper? I'm not gonna tell you. Who gave you the paper? I'm not gonna tell you. Who gave you the paper? It's all they cared about. I'm not gonna tell you. He says, I won't tell you who it was because he asked me not to. They said, okay, so we know it's a, a guy. We know they were in last semester. How long do you think it's gonna take to, to figure out who you hang out with? Gave you the tell us your name. And he looked up at them. He says it dragged out for 40 minutes. I think he probably looked up after two. But anyway, see, and he says, Mark Clark. They shut the binders, they left the room. He calls me up, he says, not gonna look good. And I started crying. I was like, oh my gosh, my whole life is done because this idiot copied my paper. Here's the thing. I waited for that phone call. And I waited and I waited and I waited day after day, week after week and the phone call never came. And I thought I dodged a bullet until a couple years later, someone in passing had told me that one of the professors had heard about the tribunal and had written them an email on my behalf calling out the whole spirit of the meeting and said, if you go at Mark, I'm gonna come for you. All of their wrath got satisfied because a substitute stood in my place and went to bat for me. And I think about that image constantly when I read the picture of the gospel that Paul writes in Romans three and Galatians two and picture of Jesus dying as a substitute on my behalf. So I never feel the heat. My fear is that some of you are trusting in yourself and your own performance as if you can substitute for yourself and you can't. Jesus himself is the only one who can. Save you both from your e-religion and your religion, your immorality and your morality. Jesus, I pray in this moment we would understand at the deepest level of our soul that you're trying to solve our lostness. That there are men and women watching this who are lost in the first way They look at you as a question they don't wanna deal with. They live their life how they wanna live it, reckless and they just don't care. And then the people who think they know you because they do the right things and the moral things. I pray for both groups to come to the place of humility and repent and turn from their sin and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus that was done for them and the resurrection that was done to empower them. Lord, in this moment, let this church be completely centered in the accomplishment of Jesus on their behalf and the loving father that's calling them, that's pursuing them, that's giving them an identity that will empower them for the mission that he's given them. Let all of our lives, on both sides of the spectrum be upended and let us see and feel the truth and live it. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. Guys, thank you so much for letting me be part of your church these last three weeks, God bless you.